0: Abraham and Sarah are models for Jewish marriage because they shared not only romance, but a destiny, a shared commitment to perpetuation of the covenant of God. And how Abraham and Sarah lived impacts how they deal with death. Welcome to Bible 365, Episode 8, Jewish Graves in Hebron and Monticello. I'm Mayor Soloveitchik. In Charlottesville, Virginia, sits Monticello, the home of Thomas Jefferson, its white dome looming in the distance. The Founding Father's grave is a short stroll from the house. But even closer to the home, there is another grave, whose stone melds the months and years of the Jewish calendar with standard ones. It reads, To the memory of Rachel Phillips Levy, born 1769, married 1787, died 7th of E.R. 5591. The tale of this grave is a uniquely American one, but it also, in its own way, captures so much about what we might call the first Jewish death, one which teaches us about the biblically inspired life. The tale of the Akedah is followed with matter-of-fact prose that reveals profound pathos. Chapter 23. And the life of Sarah was 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died in Kiriath Arba, which is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham came to eulogize Sarah and to weep for her. Our forefather has lost his wife, and our forefather, we are told, eulogized and wept. That the Bible informs us about Abraham's emotions, tells us that his reaction to loss was weeping, is important. As Rabbi Joseph Soloveitchik wrote, Why did the Torah tell us that Abraham wept? Apparently, he writes, it is befitting for a great man to cry like a child. To be insensitive, emotionally immovable, always cold, neutral, and irresponsible is not always the sign of greatness. End quote. To put it another way, Abraham here offers a response to the cold perspective put forward by Gertrude, Hamlet's mother, to her son. Married to her late husband's brother only a month after her spouse's passing, Gertrude in Shakespeare's play is utterly insensitive to the fact that her son, Hamlet, still mourns for his father. Death, Gertrude tells Hamlet, is natural, and that to her makes mourning incomprehensible. She says, Do not forever with thy lids seek for thy noble father in the dust. Thou knowest tis common, all that lives must die, passing through nature to eternity. And Hamlet responds, "Ay, madam, tis common. And Gertrude replies, If it be, why seems it so particular with thee? Now we know, ladies and gentlemen, why Hamlet mourns for his father. Because it was his father. Or as he might have put it to Gertrude, it is particular to me because he was particular to me. Similarly, Sarah was particular to Abraham. Rabbi Soloveitchik's point is that in Judaism, mourning for our loved ones is a mitzvah. It is a command. It is essential to our Jewishness and to our humanity. But, ladies and gentlemen, if crying is a natural response to loss, then another exegetical issue presents itself. For note the precise description of Abraham's reaction. In Hebrew, Abraham arrived to eulogize for Sarah and to weep for her. The order noted by commentators is striking and strange. Usually when a loved one is lost, the first reaction is to weep. Only afterwards can one collect oneself and eulogize to put one's weeping into words. Here, however, Abraham engages first in spiritual tribute, and only afterwards, in heartbroken bewailing. This is because, as Rabbi writes, quote, Sarah was not only Abraham's mate, but his comrade as well. She was a part of Abraham, not only as wife, but as disciple and teacher. Rabbi adds that Sarah was his collaborator and co-participant in all the great plans, hopes, and visions. Together they discovered God. Together they discovered a new morality. Together they joined the covenant. In a word, he writes, Sarah and Abraham started the Masorah, end quote, Masorah being Hebrew for Jewish tradition. This is why, for Rabbi Soloveitch, upon Sarah's death, eulogy precedes weeping. In eulogizing Sarah, Abraham was explaining to others all that she believed, all that she lived for. His love for her was founded upon this shared commitment, and he therefore owed it to their shared faith to eulogize first to pay tribute to all that she believed before weeping for love lost. In Rabbi Soloveitchik's words, quote, the Torah tells us that Abraham first mourned the death of the mother of the Masorah, and then the death of a lovely wife, end quote. Abraham's reaction to Sarah's death thus tells us everything about their life together, and it inspires us to ask, what does a Jewish marriage mean? For Judaism, it is not only about attraction though it is, of course, about that, that is necessary. But it is also, indeed, first and foremost, about a larger spiritual commitment. For us, Abraham and Sarah are models for Jewish marriage because they shared not only romance but a destiny, a shared commitment to perpetuation of the covenant of God. And how Abraham and Sarah lived impacts how they deal with death with a focus on covenantal continuity. One of the fascinating paintings in London's National Portrait Gallery is that of Lady Venetia Digby, a beautiful woman who died young in 1633. And her heartbroken husband, Sir Conelm Digby, called for Anthony Van Dyck to capture her beauty on her deathbed. But if you study the portrait, we see that though Venetia was no longer alive at the moment the portrait was made, she does not look dead. Rather, as Simon Schama put it, Van Dyck understood that, quote, Conelm wanted the illusion that Venetia was very much alive. End quote. Sarah, the Bible informs us, was beautiful, but Abraham sought not to preserve the memory of her beauty, but rather to tell all around him of her covenantal commitments, why she was and would be a biblical matriarch for all eternity. And it is due to these commitments that Abraham then seeks a separate burial place for his wife and himself and for their children and children's children, set apart from the peoples of the land, where they would rest for eternity and where, when the time came, their descendants would join them. Verse 3. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and spoke unto the children of Heth, saying, I am a stranger and a neighbor with you. Give me a possession of a burying place among you that I may bury my dead from before me. Abraham introduces himself. In Hebrew, I am a stranger and a neighbor among you. The phrase is a striking one, noted by Rabbi Soloveitchik, one whose words seem to contradict each other, stranger and neighbor. But that is precisely the point, because to be in the world, he argues, is to be a neighbor on the one hand, to seek to be fully part of society, to join others in contributing to it. But, on the other hand, we Jews are also strangers, for we are still set apart by our covenantal calling. Of course, throughout our history, much of the world did not allow us to be both, insisting that only if we abandoned our unique identity as strangers would we be accepted as neighbors. But America offered us the opportunity to truly be both. My favorite example of stranger and neighbor can be found in a letter that was written by an American Jew by the name of Jonas Phillips, who served in the American Revolution and later wrote to the Constitutional Convention and its president, George Washington, when it was meeting in Philadelphia in 1787. Phillips wrote to complain that in Pennsylvania, only Christians and not Jews were allowed at the time to serve in the legislature, and this, he argued, was a violation of the equality for which American Jews had fought. The letter is a classic argument for religious liberty, but strikingly. When you look at how Phillips dated it, you find the following. Philadelphia, 24th Elul, 5547, or September 7th, 1787, beginning with the Hebrew months, and then the English ones. It's astonishing. Phillips is composing correspondence to George Washington, of all people, and to the entire Constitutional Convention, with nary a Jew among them. Why is he adding Jewish dates? But the point is that Phillips is writing as a Jew and as an American, stressing that he seeks to be both and to be accepted as both. And if America truly provided a warmer welcome to the Jews than any other diaspora society, it is because it was truly the first that allowed Jews and members of every faith to be both stranger and neighbor in society. And this is what Abraham is explaining to those around him. I am a neighbor dedicating to working with you on behalf of society, but also a stranger set apart by my destiny. That, he is saying, is why I need a separate place to bury my wife, my wife, who is not only my wife, but also a partner in my covenant. But Abraham's neighbors do not initially understand, perhaps assuming that Abraham will ultimately assimilate among them. They embrace Abraham and offer him to bury his dead among them in any area for free. It takes several more exchanges for Abraham to make clear his ultimate intentions which he seeks to communicate to a landowner named Ephron. Verse 9, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah which he hath, which is in the end of his field, for the full price let him give it to me, in the midst of you for a possession of a burying place. Abraham emphasizes here that he needs a site that is separate, in Hebrew, on the edge of the field, and that he wants to pay a great deal for it, for he seeks it not merely as a temporary possession, but for what he calls in Hebrew an achuzat kaver, The word achuzah, as commentators note, means not merely a plot of land that is owned, but a familial plot of land which links generations, which resides not only in physical soil but in the hearts and minds of one's descendants. In so doing, Abraham ensured that for generations, Jews would be buried apart, a sign for eternity that even as we spread around the earth, we are one people and one faith, bound by Abraham's covenant, seeking eternally to be engaged in the world while simultaneously also set apart by our covenantal calling. Thus, the ultimate twist in choosing how Sarah would be buried and how he would be buried, their immortality was thereby assured. The story of the death of Abraham's spouse teaches us about life, and the cemetery Abraham arranged for his wife teaches us that as Jews, what we seek in a wife is a covenantal partner in faith, in perpetuation. This will be a theme that is emphasized again and again in the stories that follow. Judaism disagrees with the famous maxim that was stated by the theologians known as the Beatles, that all you need is love. And Judaism also disagrees with the Beatles' equally acknowledged maxim, love is all you need. In marriage, love is essential. But as Jews, we seek spouses loyal to the legacy of Abraham and Sarah. And indeed, we wish to found our love on that shared commitment. And this is perhaps the meaning of one of the most famous symbols of Jewish marriage. In the very same year that he wrote to the convention, Jonas Phillips invited Benjamin Rush, a prominent physician and signer of the Declaration of Independence, to the wedding of his daughter. Rush, a devout Christian, recounted to his wife his experience of having attended this Jewish wedding. And he notes how the ceremony began with, quote, the erection of a beautiful canopy composed of white and red silk in the middle of the floor. This eerie structure, of course, is the chupa under which Jewish brides and grooms have been married for centuries. Rush, then, by the way, goes on to confirm that all Jewish homes are the same everywhere by reporting to his wife that when he went, after the wedding, to bid farewell to the mother of the bride, she, quote, put a large piece of cake into my pocket for you, which she begged I would present to you with her best compliments, end quote. Can't leave a Jewish home without having cake. But it is incredible. A Jew feels comfortable inviting a famous Christian to his daughter's wedding in 1787, something that would not have happened in Europe, and this teaches us about American acceptance, but the story also provides a Jewish lesson. The chupa is an embodiment of the home that the Jewish husband and wife intend to build lovingly in the future, and yet facially it appears to be an odd sort of home to build. There are no boundaries between public and private. It is open to the breezes on all four sides. Yet the chupa makes sense when perceived, perhaps, as is often suggested, as an echo of Abraham and Sarah whose desert tent, according to Talmudic tradition, had open doors on all four sides, symbolizing their commitment to welcome all, but also to bear the monotheistic message to the four corners of the earth. Under the chuppah, then, standing in the metaphorical shadow of Abraham and Sarah's tent, a Jewish husband and wife likewise commit themselves to the Abrahamic mission. Judaism, the new couple is affirming, guides and obligates them wherever they may be or go unto the four corners of the earth. They are open to the world, seeking to engage it, but they will bear their faith with them. They will be strangers and neighbors. We are now able, ladies and gentlemen, to see the segue between the only two tales in these several chapters. Why Sarah's death is immediately followed by the tale of Abraham ordering his servant to seek a spouse for their son. Abraham makes one thing crystal clear. The servant cannot select anyone from the pagan land in which they live. The servant must journey to the Abrahamic homeland to seek someone of appropriate virtue. Arriving there, the servant selects a sign of such a spouse. Genesis twenty four thirteen. Behold, I stand by the well of water, and the daughters of the men of the city come out to draw water, so let it come to pass that the damsel to whom I shall say, Let down thy pitcher I pray thee that I may drink, and she shall say, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that thou hast appointed for thy servant for Isaac. One woman fulfills this condition, Rebecca, Isaac's cousin, who, as is often stated, is set aside, by her capacity for loving kindness and therefore obviously a worthy heir of the Abrahamic ethical commitment. It is often said that with Sarah passing from the scene, a matriarchal replacement is sought. And this, of course, is true. But more than that must be said. It is the very way that Abraham mourns for his wife that teaches us what marriage truly is. Only with the death of the first Jewish wife, as it were, do we learn about the first Jewish married life. It is only in mourning Sarah that we learn what united her with her husband in life and beyond, to eulogize for Sarah, and then to weep for her. Biblical marriage is founded on covenantal commitment, and this is the meaning of Isaac's marriage as it is described in verse 67. And Isaac brought her into his mother Sarah's tent, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. In recreating the matriarch's tent and their shared covenantal commitment, love flourishes. Sarah's grave teaches us about Jewish life. And this, in turn, brings us to another Jewish grave, which sits apart in Monticello. This is the grave of the daughter of Jonas Phillips, fighter for religious equality in America. This is the bride whose wedding Benjamin Rush attended. Her name was Rachel Phillips Levy, and her own son, Uriah Phillips Levy, who revered the equality embodied in the Declaration, bought Monticello, saved it from ruin, and buried his mother there. Ultimately, the family transferred the property to the American people. I journeyed with my community to Monticello to recite memorial prayers at the Jewish grave that is there, and it was impossible as I stood there, at this separate Jewish grave in the home of the author of the declaration, not to hear an echo of Abraham's words, I am a stranger and a neighbor among you. Give me a separate burial plot amongst you. It reminded me, of how America offered us the opportunity to live fully as Jews and as Americans, and also of the extraordinary responsibility that came with this opportunity not to abandon our identity. Strikingly, the story of Sarah's death is referred to in standard Jewish parlance as Chaye Sarah, the life of Sarah. I had come to Virginia to visit a site of death, but as I stood there, I felt profoundly that Sarah still lived. And I understood how we as Jews were called to live as well. This is Mayor Solovatric, looking forward to learning with you tomorrow, signing off.